Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I 
Welcome to season four, episode two of the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. My name is Emily White. I am uh, an author of a best-selling book that this podcast is based on. And we are here at the beautiful music recital hall at, you just taught me how to say the name of your university. Say it. Ang- Anglia. Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England. So I am so excited to be here. So what this podcast does and what the book does is takes artists and those who support artists through the modern music industry from recording to release or creation to execution while ensuring that you're not missing any revenue streams along the way. So we do it in order in a step-by-step process instead of just throwing this information at you where you're just kind of grasping at pieces of information and and trying to make sense of it all. So last night in Bradford, England, we covered Get Your Art Together. Um, And so what we're talking about there is instead of skipping ahead to, you know, marketing and and playing live and all that, right? Like you need to be making, in my opinion, you need to be making art that's true to your heart, your soul, and your spirit. 
um, just like the gorgeous music we heard from Emily and John uh, to open this episode, because that's what is going to connect with your fans for the long haul. So now we're on step two, pre-recording marketing foundation. Um, But I also want to thank some of the people that are making this happen. So today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. We want to take this time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing 100 million pounds in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of of, of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles. Plus, they have live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at seven pounds a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE, all caps, I don't know if that matters. So over at The Word, you can supercharge your knowledge and career in the music business and in the live environment with 14-day Kickstarter courses, 12-week boot camps, and a full, fully validated diploma. All online, maximum flex- flexibility, maximum impact. Get more info at The Word, that's W-R-D, no, uh, no O, dot U-K. Okay. So like I mentioned, last night we got our art together with the incomparable artist and force that is Sinead uh, Campbell. Um, So today we're talking about pre-recording marketing foundation. So um, this is the time, you know, before you hit the studio, um, you know, what should you be doing really to to set up your release instead of, okay, my music is out, I have to scramble and and do all these things. So the first thing I want to talk about is the power of email, and text lists, okay? Tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world. Why? Because they have all our contact information. They have all of our data. They have all of your fans' data if you're a musician. And Apple's never going to give you that info. Spotify's never going to give you that info. Um, And you know, I, I came up managing a band uh, called the Dresden Dolls, which are a punk cabaret duo um, who are from Boston. And Boston was a very rock city at the time, and they weren't getting booked at the normal venues. So they would play art galleries and lofts and, and parties and, and built up their fan base that way. And this was like before email list software was kind of a thing. And so the band singer, Amanda Palmer, um, just had like a little BCC'd email list. And the band was starting to build a team at the time. But I remember Amanda saying to me, I, I was, um, you, know, you know, the age of the people in this audience. I was a university student interning for them. And she would say, well, what if you go away? What if my booking agent goes away? You know, this is the only pipeline I have to communicate my music directly to my audience. And, you know, you could barely say hi to the two people in the band or myself at the merch table without us saying, would you like to join our email list? And that's a great icebreaker at the merch table. Um, That has certainly evolved into text as well. I really like the platform community.com. 
um, for Textlist because it was built for music and musicians. Um, and I really like MailChimp uh, to get rolling with email lists because it's free to get started. Um, but so uh, when Amanda put out her first solo album, which was produced by Ben Folds a few years later, we went to grab, of course, with permission because it's her band, uh, the band's email list. And all those, would you like to sign up for our email list, uh, you know, grew into a 50,000 person uh, email list. And Amanda was signed to a major label subsidiary at the time, and I'm dating myself a little bit by saying sales, but um, in, in the first week, that album sold 10,000 copies, and 1,000 were sold by the label, and 9,000 were sold directly through the email list, where we had, you know, merch bundles and vinyl and all this great stuff. So she, she easily cleared 100 grand, you know, within a few hours. Um, let alone, you know, within a day or whatever. Um, and then fast forward to uh, Amanda went, you know, uh, grew that email list to over 100,000 people and went on to raise the most money ever for a musician on Kickstarter, over a million dollars. And that's because she could communicate with her audience directly. Um, I'm absolutely not saying, you know, don't be on social media. We'll, we'll certainly talk about that. But you all know platforms change, right? Like Twitter is X now, Vine no longer exists. Like no one here has ever heard of Friendster, which was the social media platform when I was in college, right? Like we're just giving that data and that information over to Mark Zuckerberg and these, you know, multi-billion dollar tech, uh, tech platforms. So, you know, it's not why anyone gets into music, but you have to think of yourself as a tech company, as an artist or someone that supports artists, because that is how you're going to communicate directly with your audience forever and not be beholden to algorithms and trends or, you know, uh, immature billionaires uh, getting in cage fights or whatever, right? Um, so that's really the sustainable part of building a music career um, for your long for the long term. And you know the the number one way you can do that is by launching a pre-order through your website. So if you have a clear vision for your release, like I am making uh, an album, an opera, a single EP, whatever, launch a pre-order as soon as you know that so you can start monetizing your music before it's even out. The biggest artists in the world are doing this. Taylor Swift is doing that for her re-releases, you know? Um, I just saw Wilco with their album Cousin do the same thing. Uh, I'm sure my listeners are sick of this story, but I really love Noel Gallagher, so that's relevant when we're here in England. And I was talking about this in a podcast episode in January, and I got an email from his email list um, in January announcing his album in June. And in January, people could buy it, you know, for 10 pounds, all the way up to 150 pounds, all these merch bundles. And for our international listeners who might not know who Noel is, it's like, okay, well, you know, the guy who wrote Wonderwall doesn't necessarily need that money. But can you imagine the amount of money they made between January and June before it was out? I mean, so many, the vast majority of um, not big artists, frankly, wait until their music is out and then are like, okay, it's on Spotify, you know, give me fractions of a cent, give me fractions of a penny, 
Your audience wants to support you in the best way possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them, okay? So launch that pre-order. And if, if you're hitting the studio, home studio, and you don't have a clear vision for your release, that is totally cool too. Um, launch a Patreon. Um, do we know what Patreon is? Yeah, okay, I see head nodding. Um, so let your audience know like, hey, I'm entering the studio. I wanna bring you along on this journey. Um, you know, come join the family, right? And if you're comfortable, you could release, you know, a demo or, you know, photos and some teasers so they know that a release is coming. And um, so I really want to see artists, you know, first, um, instead of just waiting, you know, for streaming platforms, making, you know, pounds, tens of pounds, hundreds of pounds, hopefully thousands of pounds, instead of just asking your audience, you know, to stream the record. And I'll talk more about release strategy in episode six, but I'll give you, I'll give you a quick preview. So, you know, we're talking about the pre-order portion, which is different from pre-save. Some people think I'm talking about pre-saving your release on streaming. Sure, you can do that, right? But those are all like, you know, streaming platform tricks that are like, we, we care about you. Like, we're helping you artists, but it's like, they'll never give you your artist's uh, your fans' email addresses. They'll never give you their mobile phone numbers, right? So just like Taylor Swift, just like Beyonce, those teams and those artists are launching pre-orders for a reason because they can make whole dollars and whole pounds and, and much more um, instead of just uh, pushing streaming. So again, just a teaser for episode six when we talk about distribution. When your release is out, to me, the A-plus version is hey, it's on uh, my website, right? Like it could be Banzoogle or my company uses Squarespace, you know, to build a website. I can't code and I can, you know, sell books on my website. So if I can figure it out, you all can figure it out too. And you can be on streaming the whole time. What I'm saying is like, what are you communicating to your audience, right? So then on day two, and you should also be launching a pre-order on Bandcamp. Um, Bandcamp is where you're gonna, going to get the second highest profit margins, and also collect fan contact info um, more often than not. Uh, and then on day three, a whole 72 hours later, then let folks know you're on Spotify. You know, maybe the next day say, hey, I'm on Apple. The next day, hey, hey, I'm on Tidal. But again, if you're just like, you know, building up your whole life's work and then waiting till release day and saying, okay, here's a Spotify link, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So really the number one thing you can be doing is launching a pre-order as far in advance as possible so you can be getting that fan contact info, which you need to be building up all the time. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, um, but let your fans know, like, I want to text you, you know, I, I want you to hear from me. And, you know, when you're writing those messages, like, as you grow in your career... It really means a lot when it comes from you and, and it comes from the heart. Um, and I did the same thing, you know, when I wrote the book this podcast is based on. I did not set out to be an author. Um, I ran management companies for a long time and musicians kept asking to get coffee and like pick my brain. And I was having the same conversations over and over. So I was like, well, why don't I just write this down for everyone? And then if you have questions, let me know. And so the book was self-released. And so I launched a pre-order when I was halfway done writing it, because I was like, okay, I'm halfway done. I'll finish it. And I recouped all the printing, artwork expenses before it was even out. 
you know. Um, I'm working on the second edition as we speak, and, um, you know, I'll be doing the same thing, right? So um, I want to see you recouping before release and monetizing your music before it's even out. And, you know, this kind of goes without saying. I know most people do this anyway, but you know, before you hit the studio, if you're starting a new band, group, moniker, whatever, make sure you do grab those social media handles so you have that in place. Um, because it is nice to tease out what you're doing. You can tease out um, your email list, your community, you know, dot com text list, your Patreon. Tease them if you're comfortable, like I said, with a demo. And again, like, I totally get the studio being a sanctuary and... I love that, and I respect that, and I, and I understand that. But, it, you know, it also could be just, like, a photo of this beautiful piano, right? Like, just a teaser that something is coming. But the more you can utilize social media to collect as much contact info from your fans as possible, the better. Um, I'll just kind of wrap up this section by saying I had the privilege of interviewing Seth Godin, who really invented what we're talking about, permission marketing. When you're giving someone your mobile phone number, you're giving someone your email address, you're giving them permission to contact you. And he pointed it out to me and said, well, he pointed out two things to me that were really brilliant. One, he said, you know, on Spotify, on social media, you are the product right? Um, they're utilizing your music or our content on social media um, to become the most valuable companies in the world. And he reminded me one other thing about Amanda Palmer, the, men the artist I mentioned before. And this is someone that I worked with intimately for years. I just saw last week. And she was eventually dropped from her major, major label subsidiary because the album I mentioned only sold uh, 20,000 copies. And Seth, so that's like a failure, quote unquote, to have 20,000 fans um, in, you know, the mass market corporate world. And Seth said, do you know how many backers she had on Kickstarter to get to a million dollars or 800,000 pounds or however much that is? How, how many backers do you think she had on Kickstarter to raise a million dollars? 20,000. 20,000. So 20,000 sales. So someone in the audience said 40,000, which was a great guess. Um, but 20,000 sales to a, a major label or a major label subsidiary is a failure, but it's not how many fans you have, it's how you are working with them, right? So she was able to take those 20,000 fans and make over a million dollars, right? So that's really the power of data. Again, I know it's not why anyone got into music or is making music, but um, you are, for lack of a better word, like you, every artist is a cult, you know, like even Taylor Swift is, has a culty fan base, right? Like everybody knows like her inside jokes or her burns or whatever, right? Like don't mess with like Beyonce's, don't mess with any of these fans, right? And if you go and look at the listings for any venue, whether it's an arena or a club, I guarantee you, you haven't heard of most of the artists because we live in a world now where music is infinite because anyone with access to a laptop and the internet can record, which was not the case in the pre-digital era. You would have to sign your rights away uh, to a record company to be able to afford recording, unless you were a one per percenter, and also sign your rights away to access the keys to distribution when music was you know, solely a physical item. 
Um, so now there's that many more people making music, which I think is awesome, right? Like people have way more access to recording and distribution, but that's why there's, you know, um, that's why you look at these listings and it's just like, who is this? You know, um, but they might sell out, um, the O2 arena even, or Madison square garden or different clubs, right? Because it's about that relationship with your fans, which actually is the point, You know, I mean, the point is making music. I've been very fortunate that, you know, the folks that I worked for when I was a university student, um, they never said this, but they led by example. We always built businesses around artists and took care of fans a very close second. So I think folks can get very caught up with like promo or hiring this team or that team. And if hiring, you know, this publicist, this social media team, uh, that radio team, Um, and that equaled success, then everyone would go hire those three companies, right? It doesn't work that way. Like, you have to make great art. I'm not saying that's easy. That could take years. That could take a lifetime. Um, but then you need to connect with your audience, and the best, um, well, the best way to do so is to be genuine, but then ask them, you know, their permission for their contact info, right? And And create that authentic bond, just like, you know, Lady Gaga does and Taylor does and Beyonce does, right? Um, who are some of the biggest artists in the world. Um, great. And then, you know, like I said, don't, don't be afraid to tease, you know, as you go along in the recording process. Um, again, keep your studio a sanctuary. I totally get it. Um, but remind folks about that pre-order, remind them about your Patreon um, and let them know something is coming. So, okay. So that's enough uh, for a lecture on me, even though that really is like the Cliff's Notes version Um, to building a sustainable music career, and we'll have uh, time for any questions at the end. Um, but first, I'm super excited um, to bring out Jonathan, also taught me how, how to say his last name, Chervik. Yes, thank you. Um, it's spelled C-Z-E-R-W-I-C-K. Um, I should have known the university one before. And Emily Fraser, who are uh, local um, Cambridge artists, so come on up. Welcome. Thank We you. Need to talk into these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. So, thank you for that beautiful song. That's Emily's Emily's song. Can one. you tell us about that? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I started writing that song um, about 10 years ago or more, um, and only finished writing it maybe in the last couple of years. Wow. So it's kind of been. Um, Yeah, it's, it's been an open book um, about uh, things that I was going through at the time um, and had continued going through um, until more recently and shot that book. Great. Well, absolutely stunning. And talk about getting your art together that it took years to come to fruition, but worth the wait. Just gorgeous. Um, so all these questions are pretty much for both of you. Um, we always start at the beginning. Where are you from? Um, I'm from the north of the country. Great. Um, I moved down to Cambridge in 2005. Nice. And I've just been idling away here since then, really. Well, let me actually ask a follow-up. Um, how have you seen the scene in Cambridge change over the past 18 years? Ah. <laughs> uh, so when I came here, uh, I had memories of coming from London to Uh, Cambridge and oh that's very loud <laughs> and playing really great venues full of people and um, that's what I had in, me in my mind when we moved to Cambridge and when I got here those venues didn't exist 
and I couldn't really find anything to anchor myself into. So I spent the first 10 years kind of still commuting in and out of London because I thought that's where I had to go. And then um, a couple of years ago, just after COVID, I decided that I would face it, you know, head on and open a music venue because I knew that Cambridge really needed something for people like me and Emily and so on. So um, I, it's, it's full of pubs with music. That's what it's full of. Um, but it's lacking something to upscale people from that point onwards. Um, so that's my experience at Cambridge and I'm forever fighting that corner here. Well, hopefully we can help change that. Uh, please do. Great. <laughs> and Emily, where are you from? I'm from Cambridge. Um, so I've not really left <laughs> Cambridge. Um, ever. So ever, ever, no. Um, yeah, so I, I started playing, well, I wrote that song sort of a decade or so ago. So I started playing music around then, sort of 15 years ago. Um, and kind of just doing the little circuits, really. Um stopped to have I had a family so I've got a young uh, young couple of girls um and started up again once I found your venue <laughs> the wow. proof is in the pudding I mean yeah sorry go ahead yeah no no that's yeah so um and yeah we, we kind of met and or oh, again <laughs> it seemed like there was loads of people here doing amazing stuff yeah. uh, that I hadn't found for years and I'm really glad I did but I could, like with no home, like with no real kind of, I don't know, I don't, not to capitalise is the wrong word really, but I could see that some, someone needed to go, you know, come on, yeah. how do we do something here? Like how can we upscale what we're do, all doing? Right. So that's what, what we're all trying to do. Some of the people in this room are also helping us. So, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I was going to say I, your venue and, and you saying, you know, that you played there really shows like the power of community and also going out and, and doing it. It's like, you know, you were like, there needs to be a venue. So I'm going to start a venue. And, you know, Emily, I think it's so great that you're from here. Um, because again, to me, that really speaks to the power of community. Um, because people can have a music career from anywhere. You know, last last night I interviewed uh, Sinead Campbell, who's an amazing musician, who's from Bradford and is doing a lot of work to reinvest into the music scene in Bradford. So you know, you've been here forever. <laughs> Tell us about the Cambridge music scene. Yeah. Oh, well, I've seen it kind of do this. And I guess more recently, as in venue-wise, places to play, there is, there is there's an abundance of musicians in Cambridge. Um, and it's just a case of finding the right gigs to be able to go and see people at and, you know... It's kind of, it's costs as well. It's people wanting to go out and see music. I've seen that the audience is... The audience is still there. The structure for the bands has changed because, well, I don't want to go all doom and gloomy, but the venues can't afford to pay the bands anymore. It's as simple as that because their overheads are so extortionate. So it, I think in the last couple of years, Cambridge has had to shift, is shifting in and out of this model of we're a pub and we can afford 300 quid for a band tonight to we can't afford a band tonight, maybe ticket your, ticket your gig. So bands are starting to do that, which is really a new lease of life, I think. But the, the problem is, is the pubs risk then no one coming. So they'd rather have a full pub than risk a band ticketing a, a gig. So it really is like, a, it's just kind of fluctuating in and out of, 
of anything really <laughs> so I think at the moment yeah I remember there being like a big sort of buzz sort of 15 years ago um, when I first started but it might be a perspective thing of having you know a young innocent you know it was all all sparkly lights and everything um <laughs> and maybe in that time of <laughs> I'm looking at it with adult eyes it um, <laughs> does still sparkle it does doesn't it um but it's just I think sometimes you know um trends change and it's about being able to keep up with those um changes and I think at the moment something's shifted like you said and it's just a case of the people that are involved you know um with it needing to kind of work out how to get on mm. with that the, the musicians have to work really really hard basically to put something on right. like, like it's not easy it's find your pub speak to them wait for your time in two months we've got you know a night at the pub or so it's not it's not it's not as fruitful as it should be the yeah. live scene here. Do pubs uh, ever like collaborate with you financially and say, "Hey, we'll give you a percentage of the bar if you're going to get people in," because then they're not out the three hundred quit. You know, like then it's like, okay, we're th- in this together. I think those discussions possibly take place. It's not standard though. Right. It's not standard at all. Some people do a hundred quid from the pub and now whip round which can be really successful. Right. That's always something that like always gripes me a little bit. I was like, if people are prepared to whip round, why can't we charge them for a ticket? Right. And then we know where we stand in terms of putting a good night on, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was really hell bent on trying to change that culture a little bit, but it, I ended up going back to, <laughs> back to that culture, I think, yeah. which is we'll give you this and we'll do a whip round, you know? But, right. Yeah. Well, we were talking about this before and we talked about it a little bit last night. You know, no matter where you are, it's really important to build up what we would call in the U.S. your hard ticket count, which means your headlining ticket count. So you really want to put your eggs all in one basket. And we talk about this more in episode eight when we talk about live and touring. But, you know, if you have a release coming out... Um, venues are going to love that it's a release show, right? And so you don't want to be playing every night of the week. I mean, you need to get your chops up, right? So play some open bars, maybe play under a pseudonym or something. Um, But you want to sell as many tickets as possible. Um, So say you sell 20 tickets in Cambridge or 50 or 100 or whatever, then you can reach out to artists in nearby cities, and you guys are super close to London, right? And say, hey, I'm good for 50 tickets in Cambridge, um, can I come support you in London? And you can come open for me, right? So you can set up those gig swaps. And then we were also talking about really, again, utilizing the power of data when you're looking um, for artists in other cities to play. I mean, I'm sure you all have seen like old spreadsheets, right? Of like, okay, here's artists in Manchester or whatever. But that gets outdated really quickly. And so I really love the platform chart metric where you can type in any Google Maps location and it's going to tell you the top trending artists in each location. And it's been very fascinating looking at music scenes that I know well. And I I see this on the national, you know, um, nationally too. Last night I talked about some local examples, but I've worked with artists that get so much press you could not even imagine. Like every music press ever, way beyond that, you know, NPR, New York Times, but then they can barely sell out like a 200 capacity club in New York City. Um, They're press darlings, right? Or they're critical darlings. I've also worked with artists that, I'm going to use the word hate, press hates. It's often in 
this isn't as common here, but um, like the jam scene or the jam band scene, the Americans will know what I'm talking about. Those are bands that, you know, are of the lineage of the Grateful Dead. Um, but also, this might be surprising to you because you have such an incredible dance culture here, but EDM artists uh, in the U.S. So press hates jam, they hate EDM, but I've certainly worked with artists that can sell out Madison, uh, multiple nights at Madison Square Garden or Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is one of, our, one of our most famous venues in the U.S. So that's why it goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning. It's like, are you making art that's true to your heart, soul, and spirit, and then connecting with your audience who cares about press stuff, right? And so that's what you can see when you look at chart metric. Like, what are people actually listening to in Liverpool, in Bradford, in Manchester? And it always um, absolutely surprises me. And then we we're also talking about instead of, um, you know, just going and booking shows and hoping that people show up when you're starting to think about touring, you know, regionally, nationally, internationally look at your own metrics. Look at your own metrics on social media, um, on your email list, on your text list. I mean, John and Emily had to hear this story before, but um, I used to tour manage Imogen Heap, who I know is from nearby here. And her manager noticed that Jakarta was the number one trending country on her social media insights, which means it was a city outperforming whole countries. And her manager um, said to her booking agent, like, hey, can you see what's going on in Indonesia? And uh, she said, uh, no, there, there's no music industry there. Don't bother. And he's like, can you just check? And she came back with all these six-figure offers. And I, did, I was telling them I did the same thing. I managed uh, Brendan Benson from the Raconteurs. Um, you know, when I started working with him, he would play Nashville, New York, London all the time. And I was like, your numbers in Sao Paulo online are like huge. And so we had the agent put together a Brazilian tour and I have just like never seen happier fans because <laughs> they get so overlooked, right? So I hope that's helpful when you're thinking about these things, like build yourself up in Cambridge and then leverage that to start um, doing gig swaps, you know, regionally. And then again, you're, I know it's kind of a pain with Brexit, but you're so close to Europe, right? You're so close to all these other countries. So we talked about some of the frustrations uh, in Cambridge, but what what is working here? You know, you, you guys are he still here, so. <laughs> I, I think what works for me is that it's it's both what I love and hate about it, actually, is that it is it is a self-sustaining, it's like a little micro-industry. So um, there's people who are earning their living making music here, which is absolutely fantastic. But that is also in many ways the, the curse in that it's really hard to take the transition out because that involves um, all kinds of risks. But back to your original question, I love the fact that a tiny city can sustain the musicians that are working in it just about. <laughs> it could be better, but I think that's a really beautiful thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to, I was thinking about the same, really. Um, yeah, well, I'm still here. Um, <laughs> what's what's working? Um, well, I think it's just for me personally, it's kind of familiar, familiarity um, yeah. at the moment, um, and just there are still places. I know we were saying there's not really you know places to play, but there are still um, places at the moment, um, and it's for me. I'm just kind of still practicing. Um, <laughs> um, whilst I release or get ready to release and will get people pre-ordering I guess <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> I was listening um, 
so the community is really powerful in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're really trying to like pull people into our little community and make something happen without giving anything away. So it's very appropriate that we're here. Beautiful. <laughs> so uh, you started to tease us on this, but where are you guys at right now, either individually or together in your creative uh, processes, in your creative process? Well, I'd like to say we are over halfway. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a never-ending It's a never-ending, yes, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, recording um, a record at the moment, um, and it's it's again, it's been a very long time coming um, for me personally. Um, I've just been waiting to find the right sort of sound, I guess, mm-hmm. um, instead of releasing something that um, people are expecting of me or asking me to um, provide. <laughs> um, so I just Who want to give a little bit more. That. Sorry, that's what last <laughs> night's episode was about. It's like, are you making, you know, art that's your soul in musical form? Or are you doing it for someone else or what you think people will like, you know? Yeah. We had a discussion about releasing it twice, didn't we? Uh, to yes. try and appease yeah. everybody, actually, <laughs> in that we'll do the version we really mm. love the sound of and then we'll just do the acoustic version, which is the one everyone's going to ask for. Mm. <laughs> no, I know. Is it, yeah, because, because I've been here, you know, I haven't left. So I've kind of... I'm almost in the woodwork a little bit in, with my music. So I, 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 you know, I bump into people and think, oh, my goodness, I've seen you 10 years ago. Um, and they sort of vaguely remember me. Um, and they'll ask, you know, why haven't you got anything out? Could just be guitar and music, uh, you know, vocal. But it's not really... <laughs> it's trying to avoid the, all the obvious traps that you've kind of been talking about there. Like the constant argument with the young musicians who who are giving all their money to social media campaigns and stuff like that, and really like uh, I, th- I think we're just trying to pull everyone together and slow it down and go, look, what you're doing is so beautiful. Let's not give it to them yet. Let's just make it beautiful, and then we'll work out how to, to turn it into something that serves you rather than it's just gone once you've finished it. So we're in the throes of that very process mm-hmm. right now. And uh, there's there's a lovely gentleman over there, Sean, who's heavily involved in that process too and very talented. So we're kind of recruiting. We're going to try and do it in, in mass. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, Tiny not, mass. Not to contradict what I said by listening to your heart, but I, I think your idea on doing both is brilliant because maybe you have the acoustic versions on Patreon only or something. Yeah. People expect, <laughs> people have expectations now, so yeah. you have to think about it a bit. Right. But yeah, I, I, w- I would do, but like, I, I can't wait to pre-order your album or your music mm-hmm. and I would join the Patreon as well. So Please do. Can't wait to hear it. So Emily, you've mostly been solo over the years and John, you've played in bands. Yeah, mostly, yeah. Okay. So what are advantages or disadvantages of working in a band or as a solo artist? Because I certainly know as a manager, there's pros and cons to both. Uh, well, pro to working on your own is that you it's just your diary that you have to manage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's the, yeah, the, the inspiration, the other ideas that you'd have from bandmates, Um personally that's just um yeah writing music um yeah. say and the bits the, lo- the logistics but i, I think um, i mean be. there's been there was a massive trend in solo artists so from like the noughties through that everyone was on their stage with a guitar and singing sad songs and that kind of went wild here and uh so i 
<laughs> everyone who's in the band up to that point left their band and decided that they'd be that person too. But I've, I get the sense that there's a real demand for great... Actually, you don't have to be a band, but I think if you've got a band and you've got something going on, there's something in the power of that collectiveness that I think people really, really want to see right now. So I'm really championing going out with the band and putting... It could just be a couple of you or a few of you, but just trying to do something different, try and, I don't know, make a different sound to just to what you might do on your own. That's really beautiful too, but I do think the people want to see more they expect more they're paying more i don't know you do have to take into consideration a certain amount even though you're doing what you love absolutely and tomorrow in nottingham we're going to talk about getting your business affairs together is that a phrase here do we know what business affairs means in theory In, in, (laughs) in the american music industry it would mean legal Right. So we'll talk about, you know, band and group agreements tomorrow, you know, sorting out your players. I'm sure you've had to hire players and or maybe you haven't. Maybe you play everything, which is rad. It's <laughs> just me. <laughs> wow, that's great. Because, again, I've, I've worked with solo artists where they have to hire a band to tour, you know, for the studio and it can get very expensive. Um, so that to me, that's where some of the pros and cons can also come in. But I love the scheduling and diary mm-hmm. point. <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> but expensive. We really, yeah, we pull true. on the community for that yeah. kind of stuff in all the bands because we all tend to be in everyone else's bands at the moment. So right. it does work out the cost effectively. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. You know, figuring that out and also maybe just writing it, writing down when you do the the trades. You know, so that there is um, some sort of paper trail on that. So. You know, again, we're talking about pre-recording marketing foundation. I know the word marketing is kind of a dirty word and not um, why any of us got into music, but um, how do you balance social media when you're preparing a release and in general, right? Because you're an artist, you didn't get, I assume you didn't get into music to sit on, you know, phones and computers. No. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'm, I'm the social media you're the young one the two (laughs) and I'm still not caught up at all um I'm one of the I'm a I'm a drip feeder um with social media mainly because I'm not one to sort of shout about myself so I, I kind of I used to find it fascinating that people could you know go on do all these live things, shout about themselves and all of this sort of jazz. And I've never been one to do that. But um, I think it does help um, (laughs) to be a little bit more, um, you know, in people's faces a bit. Um, How do I manage it? I mean, I don't do enough to be able to kind of it to be, you know, overburdening. I have seen it take over people's yeah. you know, lives, yeah. and you watch, and you from a, you know from um, an audience perspective, you can see how much work goes into it, yeah. um, and it's a lot of time. It is, and I personally, I personally don't have that time, so I don't manage manage it very well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a uh, load those uh, apps onto my phone ten minutes before I make a post, and then erase them immediately. That's my in- interaction with social media. <laughs> But when I had the venue, I did all the stats stuff and I collected all the stats and we did um, paid promotional campaigns and I did get really into it in a geeky way for a while. And once I learned that the things that get the biggest hit on social media never equated to anyone coming through the door, I kind of just pulled back and I was like, okay, I'll just use this for going, 
it's happening now yeah. and here and that, that's it for me really nice that seems to be the best use of social media yeah I think that makes sense and again um share your email list link like share your text uh link like see if you can because that's what's you know if they give you that that's so powerful so do either of you have an email or text list or are you considering one in the future Definitely considering them. (laughs) 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 I'm in a band that uses that really well. Great. And we've now managed to leapfrog around the country a little bit. And uh, it's the the direct contact works every time because those people are always at those gigs when we get there. Exactly. And that you wouldn't get that if we didn't have that. So there is absolute um, need to do that. I think. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, I I am more so now because I was kind of scared of it all Mm -hmm. Um, because you become your own manager really and yeah. you know you're the one to blame if you're sending the wrong content out or you know what do you mean thinking about like no I'm not the wrong content but as in gathering people's where were you last email. night <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna follow you um just for uh, the boring old GDPR purposes you know that that sort of thing oh, because it's yeah. kind of you know drilled into me um through because this isn't my full-time job right um so having to manage that myself, that's a bit that's a bit more of a sure. um, worry, but clearly, you know. <laughs> it's just like another piece of the pie that's really hard to understand when you're doing all of it, I think. Yeah. The, the artists have to do all of it at the moment, so. Right. Um, yeah. Mm. Long gone of the days where people would come and sort out all your affairs and you just turn up and play, which was absolutely fabulous, but, you know. I'm, but, I'm offering that to people. But not available <laughs> to everyone. It's right? not available hardly yeah. at all. And it's certainly around here that no one's doing that work at all. Yeah. So well, it is maybe, totally self-made. Maybe you could pick up some students yeah, right. yeah. yeah. at, at the university. Um, well, you can have my email address and mobile phone number, Emily, and um, you have my permission so you can start your list. We'll do a gig swap in yeah, New York. That's exactly. <laughs> but that's also why we're going step-by-step. Step. I actually meant to ask the email and text list question before social media. So we've covered getting your art together, which you guys do brilliantly, right? And so now we're talking about setting up that text list, setting up that email list. And then utilizing the social media platforms to collect that data. And I was interviewing a really brilliant artist named Cam Franklin uh, one night. I think it was on our nonprofit I Voted's podcast. And she kept having to push the interview in the same day because she was touring and there were delays. And she shows up on the screen, you know, in this hotel exhausted. She's like, I'm just so, she just was so, what you're saying, you know, overwhelmed. And I was like, you know, Cam's a, a powerhouse of a live performer and has a really loyal audience. She's like, I'm so sick of the algorithms and now it's memes and now it's this and now it's that. And I was like, and she's like, it's obviously like affecting her mental health. And I said, just put up a post and say, this is our text list or this is our email list. And that's the best way to hear from me about our shows, about our releases. So it's like when you have something important, like a show you're really focusing on to build up those hard ticket counts or a tour or a release, you don't need these fancy social media marketing companies. Again, like I was saying to John uh, before this, like I, I read Seth Godin's blog every day and he was saying none of these marketing, you know, social media marketing people know what they're doing. Only the social media companies know the tricks that work. So unless you work there, you don't know that. Like, if you have a tiny little bit of a budget, and, and in episode seven, we'll talk about how to market with or without a budget. So you don't necessarily need one. Like, I mean, it's, I feel weird saying this because I'm a behind the scenes person, but it's like, I've always been really organic in my social media. You know, like 
I know like Twitter or X or whatever is not as popular, but when I started my first um, company 15 years ago, I kind of sarcastically joined being like, maybe someone will care about this young woman starting a company. And I would just be like working and okay, one of my artists has a gig, you know, one of my artists have a gig, I'll, I'll post about that or here's some content or whatever. And people were interested in that. And then Billboard magazine ended up naming me like a must executive to follow multiple years in a row, right? And I was always just being myself. And I also had a rule, I still try to have this rule, I I try to only post positive things on the internet. And so I was able to build up a network. They are social networks, right, of industry folks and and friends and and like-minded people. But now I don't do this often, but I did it when I announced this UK tour. Like I threw a little bit of an ad spend behind one of the posts and I just saw the engagement go up. I mean, so many of it, like a lot of it was like my parents' friends. It was Facebook, right? So it's like you said, it's like, are they actually showing up? But my point is like, if you're starting to get enticed by, you know, social media marketing, it's like you, if you have a, you can better utilize that budget for other things, right? Like you can play around with that yourself and and figure out what works and what. But again, to me, it's just like just your your fans want to support you in the best way possible, but they don't know how unless you tell them, right? So if you tell them, hey, I want to text you. This is the best way to stay in touch, or you know, I want to email you, or both, ideally. Um, and hey, here's my pre order, right? Here's my band camp. That is so much better than like. All these artists we all see on stage, like, follow me on, on Instagram. Here's my Spotify, right? It's like Mark Zuckerberg and Daniel Eck, and that's it, right? And Spotify, I don't know if, if you all have read this, is now changing their model where they're only going to pay the biggest artists. They're not even, I, some of that isn't even like totally legal, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, if you're just starting out, you don't even get your fractions of a cent anymore. So, that's my rant on that, but are you... I'm like permanently down here so I don't get started. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, feel free. No, that's what we're here for. I mean... No, I was just... This is what you mentioned, Spotify. I could feel my blood get yeah. really hot there. So. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a podcast episode in and of itself. It's like they built their whole um, company off the backs of musicians, and now they... I hope I'm not a total hypocrite in saying this um, because my justification is like I am genuinely trying to help musicians, but now they're investing so heavily in podcasts, right? Like, where's that? I mean, the rate, I don't know if this is the case everywhere. I'm, I assume it is, but at least in the US, they ha- they pay such a high CPM rate to podcasters. A musician said to me, why don't I just distribute my music through their podcasting platform? Now, the reason you actually shouldn't do that, and the reason Spotify is doing that, in my opinion, is it will be cheaper for them in the long term to have podcasts because they there are legal royalties that they have to pay. And so if it's a 15-year-old anime podcast, there's no laws around that, right? So that's why I don't care how many times I say it, you have to collect the fan data, right? Like with permission. Emily, I give you my permission um, to have my phone number and email address and communicate directly um, about what you're doing. So are you guys on Patreon, or are you thinking about it? Um, I'm not. I, I know of it. Um, I've got a few friends so it's, it's on I it. Don't, I don't know what it is, actually. <laughs> it's kind of like an <laughs> online fan club where um, people can, and you get the email addresses also, where it's like, I want to support John, or I want to support John and Emily. I just want, I want to be a patron of 
the arts of John and Emily. Um, and, you know, I even do that for um, a yoga teacher who started a, a Patreon during the pandemic, right? Um, I pay $40 a month, actually, for that. So there's, it, it could be a dollar, it could be $5, and, you know, the higher it goes, the more stuff you get. But um, uh, we manage an artist named Julia Noons, and she pays all of her expenses with her Patreon, her rent, her food. So anything she makes on gigs and merch and anything else is profit, um, but she knows that her expenses are, are taken care of. So again, to me, it's just a really nice online fan club um, where your fans are supporting you financially, and then you're also getting their email address, which is... That's a great idea. Yes, yes. Bandcamp works cool. in that way too, because I, I sponsor a couple of people on Bandcamp, so yeah. a, a pound a month. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, every little helps. <laughs> Absolutely. So... What has worked best for you guys to connect with your fans while you're building up a release? Do you ever think about that? Or is, is that too overwhelming, which is totally legit, you know, when you're in the studio uh, working on a release, if that makes sense? I'm very old school in that um, I let someone else try and do all of that bit for me. So uh, I'm always really like, or really aware of like, oh, okay, so I'm going to try and put something out. Who's going to, who's interested in that? Um, I'm very lucky that I have got like a third partner that nice. does does some of that stuff, a little label. So I don't really pay much attention. I mean, I should do, and I probably will again, but I'm just going to focus it to something really local that is tangible, I think. So there's going to be this gig here, and that's where you can get all your products. So I, for me, it's just about streamlining all of that excitement and, and the size of releasing something into something that means something, I think. So it, for me, it just gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> rather than bigger and bigger when you're a teenager you're like ah, sure. I'm going to do all of it but now I'm just like no just that that little bit there, I mean so. it's really smart and, and you mentioned Bandcamp too like um, I was working with Matthew Friedberger from the Fiery Furnaces and he put out a song on Bandcamp but then he just kind of as a joke did a th- added a tier of a thousand dollars for a drawing of a rhino and someone someone bought it you know so um, it, again it's what we talked about earlier it's not necessarily how many fans you have it's how are you working with them you know with those rhino drawings and badly then <laughs> based on that quite badly I think. <laughs> well, what about you Emily are you, are you able to you know tease and share a little bit while you're making music I try to yeah. I try to a little bit um more so that people know that something's coming because yeah. it has been such, you know, it's just it's just a long journey. So I feel I kind of think oh, I've not really touched base with anyone for a little while. So I'm sure. just going to teases tease, yeah. yeah, and just say, look, there's something that's here. And the same with, and just if I've got a clip from a live, then just release that tiny little clip, um, not the full song, <laughs> and just you know, just yeah, just little snippets. Um, but again, in drips and drabs. Yeah, and then I would say, no pressure. Here's my, you know, if you want, if you want to know when it's out, like here's the text list, here's the email list. Because again, um, we're all the product on social media, so we want to turn that around um, and grab that contact info. So, last question for me, and then we'll um, open up, open it up to some Q and A from the audience. What does building a sustainable career mean to you guys? <laughs> you should answer because I've kind of had my career. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to help these guys, really. So, <laughs> oh, well, I, 
I'm no longer searching for the big, mm. the big thing. Um, so for me, as long as I'm ticking over and I'm doing something that I'm passionate about and not having to work a second job or work the job, I'm referring to my other job as my second job now. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, yes, no, that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? Um, and being creative and... You know, I, I'm pers- I, I don't want, I don't want it to be. I, it should just be a normal, normal salary almost. Yeah. I, I would be happy with, um, if I can pay myself, pay my kid, um, you know, feed my kids, keep the roof over our head, whilst doing something creative and something that I'm enjoying. Then that for me is sustainable. Um, obviously, I'm talking more financial, but um, and to be playing regularly um obviously taking breaks for family yes um yeah and just kind of living really through it all living the journey living the journey journey. sustaining the journey rather than the financial aspects of the journey before john answers because i do want some wisdom from you on what you think building sustainable career means to you um i'll give you a copy of my book after and this is not going to sound like the sexiest thing but i created a revenue stream spreadsheet in it which i created for um i no longer manage artists our company does but um the last two artists I, i i managed um because I took these two artists on. One had just been dropped by um, a big UK label, actually. Very publicly dropped. Her fans knew it. And she was flat broke. And I said, can you record a song? And she said, yes. And then she put it out on Bandcamp and it averaged like, you know, seven, eight uh, pounds, you know, per fan. And um, she wanted to live in New York City. And so I created... I have a revenue stream checklist in the book with every revenue stream that's owed to you if you write, record, slash, release, and play live so you're not missing anything. But then I also put that into a public Google spreadsheet where you can plug in your PRS numbers, your release numbers, and then it'll project what you will roughly make monthly and annually so it feels like which is, it sounds like what you want, a real job in a good way. Instead of, and I can totally relate to this as an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur you get a chunk of money and you're like, okay, I'm just going to live off this till it runs out and then I have to find another chunk of money, right? So um, again, not like the most sexy thing, but um, you know, I'll give you a copy of that. Um, John, you have so much experience. What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? I used to think <laughs> that it was about... Um obviously making money but uh, really at the moment building a sustainable career is about for me removing all of the money and really focusing on what it is you want to do Uh, first of all what is your art make it as good as you can and then I I don't really know actually here's the thing is I I know when I look around and hear talented musicians I'm the money go like that I see the the pound signs behind my eyes and then I immediately feel guilty that I'm thinking about money because you shouldn't be, but I, in my heart, I know that there's a way to make that into something that's financial for these people, and I don't really know what the path is, so what I've done is remove money, so my involvement, sometimes you need to ask for a little bit, but on the whole, I don't ask for any money for anything that I do, and that's, and I've got a very, very, very caring partner, so I'm very privileged to be able to do that, but I'm going to do it as much as I can while I can. 
And I think just focusing on what you want your art to be, where you want, where you want it to be, or what level you want that to be at. I always like say to Emily, like, what is it that you want to do? Like, we're making music, but then what are we going to do with it? Like, what is your career? What does it look like? How does it work around what you're doing? And then somehow catering that into something vaguely sustainable is, is an ideal, but crowdfunding is really good. Um, getting something placed on a, on ideally not an advert, but on a film or a bit of television has served me really well over the years. So I get little drip, bit, drip feeds from PRS, yep. which allows me to put time into other things that I think are really important. So I think like sew up all those little bits. If you're going to release something, make sure PRS pay you everything because I know there's loads of money that they've never given me. But Mm -hmm. so just like make sure that you are getting what is yours if it's making some money because quite often you can drift by for years and people are using your music and you've got no idea about it. So I think you've got to be a bit savvy and you've got to speak to PRS regularly uh, if you don't want to do that, you need to find a lawyer or someone who might help you collect that money, um, which unfortunately costs, but um, there's normally something there at the end of it. That's what I've learned. But sustainable to me isn't about money anymore. It's about achieving what you want to achieve and how you do that that suits your life, really. So that's that's my wisdom. Oh, I love that. And, I, and again, I hate to go back to the PRS thing for a second, but we're going to cover that and sync in episode five um, on music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. Um, so with that, um, I, for the second night in a row, I did not give the tech team a heads up on this. So if you have a question, um, I'll just repeat it. So it goes into the mic, but um, any, oh, we do have a mic. Oh, you guys are so on it. Amazing. Yeah. So we have a question back there. Hello. Um, is it working? There yeah. we go. Um, I've, I've got a question for Jonathan, if that's all right. Um, me, me and Tolbert are second year music production students, and we've been hosting our own shows in Cambridge this last year. We've had one in June and then one back in early October. Um, I know you mentioned about your venue. Could I was, I was just curious, you know, what, what venue is it and whereabouts is it? Uh, oh, the venue sadly has become a non-venue over the last few months, so... Um, it's called Tall Trees. It's just up the road here. It's a tiny little live music venue. Uh, the, everything was too extortionate, the rents, the brewery prices. Um, so I exited very briefly. Like, and I was there briefly and I exited quite quickly. Sorry. Um, outside of those, that venue in Cambridge, I think what I would suggest is find somewhere that you want to play. And it doesn't have to be in a pub that has music. It could be a really interesting setting or somewhere that's unusual. And try and work out how to put something on that you're in control of. That's what I would, that would be the angle I take. Um, And just try and govern that yourself, sell some tickets. You don't need a lot of people to have a really amazing night neither. So um, like, don't worry about loads of people coming. Do something that means something to you that is somewhere special. And I think you're, you're, you'll find is if you feel that, other people will get on board with that as well. So um, unfortunately, the venue's not there. <laughs> it's now a vegan, it's called Hank's Dirty Vegan Restaurant. <laughs> it's quite quiet. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I'll just add to your point, like whether there's two people in the audience, five, 50, play your hearts out, Right. Um, so you can go up to them and be like, hey, can I get your mobile phone number? Can I get your email address, right? So any other questions? Yeah, over here. So 
This is kind of a question for everyone because I feel like you all might have a different viewpoint on this. But when you're doing mailing lists or Instagram or social media and stuff, do you think that content is more important or do you think hold off and work on your brand and image more than the, how frequently you post? I'm going to jump in and say I just think authenticity is what's most important. Just like with your music, are you trying to do, yeah, it's okay to try stuff in music, but it's like, are you doing something that you think other people will like, or are you being your authentic self? And my friend Ariel Hyatt, um, who was on our marketing episode in season one, told a story about, um, she was working with an artist that was like trying, trying, trying on social media, and then he posted a bunch of um, crumpled up pieces of paper in, in the rubbish bin that were um, songs he'd thrown out. He's like, sometimes it's, you know, you go through all these ideas to get to the right one, and that post blew up, right? So I think it's about being your authentic self. And I think, um, you know, whether you love doing admin work, emails, social media, or it's torture, that artists should uh, block off like an hour of business day to focus on it. Because if you love it, you are going to get so sucked in, right, where you're going to start, in my opinion, to lose sight of who you are as an artist and why you started doing this. And these social media platforms are literally programmed to be addicting, right? There's, you know, student engineers at Stanford learning like, okay, red means this or whatever, right? It's the attention economy. So you need to cut yourself off. But if you hate it, right, like it is important um, to engage. So I do think you should be checking in on your social media. Pains me to say this, like kind of every weekday. Obviously, if you need a break, take breaks. Like I definitely take breaks from that stuff. Um, but it also could just be like responding to people, giving, giving them a heart or favorite or stuff. So, but to me, authenticity is queen. Have, like have fun with it as well. Yeah. Because we were talking about like <clears throat> the equivalent of podcasts in my day were radio interviews, sure. and we used to go on tour. And the ones where you sat and talked endlessly about what you were doing seriously, yeah. you could see even the guy interviewing would be like, "Oh, okay." And as soon as you start to have a bit of fun and do the things that you love doing, the engagement suddenly clicks in. And I think that's it. Authenticity is everything. Really. Yeah. No, I'd second that as well. Or <laughs> third it, yeah. Everyone says that like, still images don't have any pickup at all on social media now. I don't know how true any of it is, but obviously moving images do capture the imagination much quicker. That's my, a nugget of something. I don't know. You know that anyway. but I guess, but just be yourself, right? Like I post, for, I don't know. I'm kind of lazy about video, but... I don't know. I don't, yeah. Whatever works. Yeah, what, whatever. I've got lots of good ideas. Yeah, what, no, but whatever feels right to you, you know? Um, great. Any other questions? Uh, relating to your uh, question, well, the previous question, um, uh, talking about authenticity online, we're, a few of us here are actually third year uh, music performance students and AMC. We're putting on a conference uh, next year. And so obviously we're part of a social media team looking at a strategy, how to sort of build engagement and everything. When it comes to authenticity, how would you be authentic when it comes to actually, you know, maybe a, a business sort of standpoint instead of an individual artist? Yeah. Um, I would say, I mean, because I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like I created this book. I created this podcast. I created a nonprofit called I Voted in the U.S. Um, it's like, why would you want to attend that, right? Like, is it, are, are you, I know you are, like, are you putting together speakers and um, a program that you're interested in, right? So it's that authentic authenticity. Like everything I've ever done in business is because it's, you know, creating things that I want to see in the world, 
Um, so I think it's the exact same for what you're doing. Like if you thought your conference was lame, then that would be, you know, inauthentic if you're pushing it. But if it's something you're excited about, then share that excitement, spread the word. I'm, I'm not sure I've got an answer on that one. I'm, I'm too naive to, to like what yeah. you're doing. You know way more than I do in that already. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, John and Emily, thank you so much for your time, time tonight. This was amazing. Let's give it up for John and Emily. Thank you. They're going to play us out, but um, for anyone that feels like coming up to Nottingham tomorrow, you can join us at the Metronome, where we will be teaching you how to get your business affairs together with Sam Heaton from Rough Trade. I really want to thank Mark, Becca, Howard Monk, Ian Mack, uh, Mike Zimmerlick, Lilia Isa, and our engineer, Nathan Kane. And so now uh, let's have John and Emily play us out. Thank you so much. Shapes you the way it shapes you.